This is The Busyness Podcast. I'm Emily Austin, founder of London-based PR agency Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my own business when I was fresh out of university in 2012, and since then, the world has become louder, our expectations have become harder to meet, and our lives have all become busier. We're constantly fobbing off friends with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm too busy. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? In this podcast, I sit down with some of the most exciting entrepreneurs, CEOs and founders in the world, asking how they manage their time, their lives, their brains, and of course, their busyness, to find out how they're able to cut through the noise and create some of our favorite brands. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I am so excited to be bringing you a very special episode this week with serial entrepreneur Marcia Kilgore. If you haven't heard of her from Bliss, which she sold to LVMH in 2004 for a rumoured $25 million, or Soap and Glory, which she sold to Boots in 2014 with over £100 million in revenue, you may have heard of Soap Duper or Fitflop. You probably will have heard of Beauty Pie. Marcia sat down with me today to discuss everything really from the beginning. We talked about um, customer service and attitude. We talked about connecting the dots, how to know when an idea is good. We discussed the fact that Beauty Pie is the first business that she's actually raised money for. Um, TechCrunch reported three years ago she'd raised $100 for that business venture. Um, We talked about integrity and uh, what she looks for when she hires people and her team. It was so insightful and so interesting. Um, I'm, I really hope that you can see and feel from Marcia her warmth and interest in people and her genuine passion for exploration. She is an extraordinary woman and I feel very, very grateful that she spent time with me recording this episode. Thank you so much. Congratulations are in order. You are, you've been named by Vogue as one of their 25 most influential women. It's so wonderful. I've been around for so long. I was on a Vogue list in 1999. So, and I've had like several Vogue stories. I've been photographed by Irving Penn, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, it's great. It's amazing. But everyone's like, woo. And I'm like, okay, can we get, can we get the email out? Yeah, yeah. You're like, I'd like to be on the cover of Time, actually, rather than just another Vogue roundup. I mean, I was just saying earlier that I run a PR marketing agency in my day job and I set it up 11 years ago when I was 22 years old. So having worked with lots of brilliant entrepreneurs like Sarah Blakely at Spanx and Julian at Huel and all these brilliant kind of titans of industry, you are very much in that category and have achieved such a huge amount and are so inspiring for so many well, I think women, but but generally entrepreneurs as well. I can understand why the team's super excited for you to be included in that list, even if, you yes. know, for you it's it's another one, perhaps. I think it, it gives me street cred for the 25-year-olds in my business. Yes. They're like, ooh, look at that. It's like, what? what? You didn't? Yeah, you're like, oh, you guys are influenced well, you by that. Cool. You have not listened to all my podcasts, and but they don't, so... It's cute. It's like they're excited. They're really and and it is exciting. It's wonderful and what an incredible like co list. Yeah, of right? course. All of those amazing women. So the Queen it is great Consort to be sort of and you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I um, I know I've got you for limited time. Unfortunately, I don't have you for five hours, so I can't talk about your extraordinary career in that sort of depth. But I, I definitely don't want to disregard any of your early career, but I would love to focus a bit more during this time on Beauty Pie and Fit Flop. But I guess, you know, to, to sort of not overlook it, Beauty Pie is your fifth business, your fifth successful business. Yes. Um, you started a company called Bliss, which you sold in 2004 to LVMH. Soap and Glory, a bastion of Christmas, but also just any entry into Boots, you see the, you see the, the pink, um, which you did then after 100 million of revenue revenue sell to Boots, so two hugely successful exits from businesses. We can obviously talk about Super Duper as well, but I wanted to start sort of a bit earlier with you, just in terms of when you were younger, did you have people around you who inspired you creatively? 
I thought that was a really interesting question. I think it's um, very generational um, because I think creativity takes a lot of forms. I grew up in the prairies in Western Canada. Um, there was not a lot of creativity, right? We had two television channels. And if you could get to school without your eyelids freezing together, that was like a creative endeavor. So <laughs> I would say cre yeah, creativity took a lot of forms in those days. So for me, like I was, I'd say a little understimulated, a little underfunded. So I did not come from a rich family whatsoever. So creativity comes in trying to keep yourself interested when you don't really have that much around to interest you. Um, I was probably a little bit bored and I only had a few strings to pull as outlets for, for, you know, what we would call, I suppose, creativity. Um, and that was, that was probably more like survival. Right. So I think the creativity that I was inspired um, by was creativity related to how do I get myself to a place where I'm not necessarily in a situation where I feel bored or I don't have enough around me to interact with, or I'm not in a situation where I'm worried about um, about money all the time. Um, and so that was sort of what I grew up with that I can remember in terms of creativity. And where were you getting your information from? Because obviously now with social media, with the internet and everything else, but was it sort of was it local libraries? Did you consume books? Were you sort of talking to the people that you could talk to that had travelled and were interesting? Where were you getting your information from? So which age would you be talking about? I think probably late late teens. So okay. 17, 18, yeah. so, 19. Okay, so um, when I graduated from high school, which was in, in Saskatchewan, which is in Western Canada, but really cold prairies, like nowhere, nothing, <laughs> I moved to New York. Because my sister was a, a model and she said if I could get accepted to Columbia University, she would pay for my tuition. Okay. So I moved to New York and I was living in her apartment for a little while. And then unfortunately, the tuition plan kind of fell through. So I basically was a 17 or 18 year old stranded in New York. Wasn't wasn't terrible. <laughs> it was like, Pretty quite this fun. is kind of the best place that you could be stranded. But I had to then figure out how to make money, right? Because I had no job and I had um, not enough tuition to go to school. So I actually had to pay for my life in New York until I could save up enough money or figure out a new tuition plan. It was sort of over for that year and it was too late for me to get a student loan or anything like that. Right. So the good news was because I had spent my earlier teenage years really learning how to hustle. I had four part-time jobs when I was in high school. Um, I knew how to go find work, right? I could be an illegal alien in New York City at the age of 17 who knew absolutely nobody while my sister traveled around the world, you know, being a model. Yeah. And I could actually go figure out how to make money and I did it. So I think that it was a really great learning ground to not have everything handed to me. Um, I had a really interesting conversation actually with some friends who came over the other night and they were talking about how, well, if you want to go to university, right, Oxbridge is the place you want to go because the people that you want to go to school with are there. Right. And I said, actually, <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know if the people that I wanted to go to school with were there because they don't know how to hustle yeah. necessarily. You're like, I did, right? okay. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm doing all right and I didn't actually ever finish university because I got really busy with my business. And I think that having that innate hustle from being young and not having a lot of money and having to figure it out myself, that's creative. Right, right. And it stays with you for a really long time. And did you, now we, we hear so much about side hustles and obviously it's never been easier to start a business or do something on the side or, you know, be in the city, but actually be a photographer on your weekend or have all these pursuits. But when you moved to New York, what was the, were friends doing the similar things you were doing? Was it easy to connect with people where you could make money? What was sort of happening around you at the time? Well, no, I didn't really have any friends when I moved to New York. So I moved to, and I was living with my sister and I was supposed to be going to Columbia because right. I had been accepted to Columbia University because I randomly wrote the SATs and I managed to score very highly. And then, and so I got in, but yeah. then when I got there, I was really alone in my sister's apartment. Um, and so I ended up because I had been a personal trainer or actually I had been, I had been a bodybuilder in high school just to kill time. I did hear that, um, that you just sort of yeah. did that in your spare time, which is extraordinary. There was nothing else to do. It was, you know, Canada, 40 degrees below zero, you're kind of bored and you just think, well, what can I try and excel yeah. at besides school, which wasn't that difficult for me. So I had school and then I had bodybuilding. 
And so I, I joined a local gym I had read about um, in, you know, back then there were like bodybuilding magazines at the gym. And I read about this gym in New York called Better Bodies and John, uh, what was his name? Um, Jean-Claude Van Damme yes, and Gladys yeah. Portuguese and all these like coolsters worked out at this gym. And a lot of fashion people worked out at the gym and a lot of actresses, models, like you name it. It was sort of the groovy people's gym. And it was literally maybe seven blocks from my sister's apartment. So she would go traveling. And I begged her, could you please buy me a membership to this gym? Because I didn't have any money. So I went to the gym, right? And at that time, I looked like an Olympic athlete, you know, very fit. So people would approach me and say, hey, I want to look like you. Can you be my personal trainer? And that's how I first started to make money in New York. I just would make $10 an hour taking some, you know, film director through the exercises on the machines. It's like early and, marketing. You're walking in as your own advert and then everyone yes. wants to buy. <laughs> You're like, I'm selling myself. And then did you... Just don't ask me what happened to my six pack. Oh my God. Long gone. <laughs> <laughs> but then you did that. You made money from personal training. And then at some point you said, actually, I want to have a look at the beauty industry. I, you know, facials particularly. It, in that first role when you had Bliss and you were sweeping the shop floor you were there you were answering phone calls I, you know I've read a lot about how you used to send thank you notes to people for being a customer it hugely shaped your understanding of consumer relationships can you tell me a bit more about what you learned then and how that has really continued through all the all the different businesses that you've created Sure. I think, I mean, some of the very basic parts of customer service and, and the value chain are often forgotten when people are trying to put together businesses or business models based on sort of theory, right? They forget the human in the middle of the equation. Uh, a lot of economics equations also, they never talk about humans or, or um, emotions, and I think that emotions guide so much of what we do as individuals and, and what we buy and why we buy it. Uh, and you never see that on a, on a chart in your economics class, right? You'll see supply and demand. You'll see price versus demand. It's not always right. Um, we know that, you know, you can, you can charge a lot for something and then people think it's good even if it's not, right? Immediately you're like, well, that's a lot. That must be really high quality. Right. Um, and, and vice versa, if something is a really good deal, you might think it's low quality. So there's always uh, heuristics that the brain uses to put together different facts and then come to conclusions. And that's more of an emotional process than people know. So I think in the end, um, when when I had created Bliss and before that I had a little place called Let's Face It, uh, it was really successful because number one, there was a lot of trust there. So people often were sent by their friends, right? People would come in and book appointments for every single month for the next two years, right? And if they couldn't make their appointment, we would find someone to swap their appointment with so they could make it on a different day. We would call people who were on the waiting list. Every person who was on the waiting list at the end of the day would get a phone call where we would apologize that we hadn't managed to get them out of the waiting list and let them know that we were working really hard to get them on into an appointment. It was just... What was that time called? Oh, yeah, the sorry calls. The sorry calls, yeah. <laughs> we would do sorry calls and it would be like, okay, who's on the sorry calls? And somebody would just sit down an hour before we closed and just go through the list. Yeah. And the great thing was that, you know, sometimes just at that time, they knew that we were trying to find them something. So they would wait right. because they knew and the, the service was that good. And then when they finally came in, you would have an amazing treatment and... Nobody would try and hard sell you any products. And it was all about you. And there were rules about how the treatments were done and what the technicians were allowed to talk about, right? No complaining about your own life. No, you know, it's all about that customer. You're interested in her or him or them. It is their time, right? And that's what you focus on. And when they leave and they hand you a check for $100 or whatever it is at the front desk at the end, you're writing them a thank you note because if somebody walked up to you on the street and gave you $100, would you say thank you? Yes, you would. So before those technicians were allowed to leave at the end of the day, they had to write the postcards. And it was just all about like manners, right? Doing your very best, very high quality, not taking on more than you could execute well, right? We had X number of treatment rooms. 
um, those treatments were an hour and a half long. We made sure to just deliver the best possible quality and, and people trusted us and came back over and over and over again. I mean, it was actually a bit difficult because when we, I remember when we moved from this smaller spa where we had three treatment rooms into one that we had 12, we thought, oh, this is going to be great. The waiting list is going to be gone. We're going to be able to take everybody. And I had been training all these new technicians for months. And literally on week two, we were already booked like 18 months out in advance for 12 treatment rooms, which was really crazy, but but great. Do you think that same culture and standard setting would be very difficult to retain and achieve had that business scaled to sort of hundreds of sites? Do you think there's a sweet spot where whilst it's smaller, it is just so much easier to to embed those cultures? Sure. It takes a tremendous amount of training. Um, I think looking back, I probably wouldn't have, have had such a a wide variety of treatments on that menu, right? Because there's there are other things that, that technicians and staff members and team members have to learn besides how to do the treatment. And so you'd probably split your training up into different types of training rather than just, you know, here's how you do these eight different massages. It might be that we had three massages, the most popular three, and then you train them in psychology and you train them in you know, all of these different right. things that would have helped. Um, certainly things can be automated so well today right? That, yeah, the human touch you cannot replace, but there's a lot of other stuff that you can do very, very well with artificial intelligence or just by automating certain processes. Um, and that's what's kind of wonderful about Beauty Pie and that we can send a newsletter that's very personal to hundreds of thousands of people. And it's, it's considered very, very um, carefully about how we talk to our customers and how much we respect how they feel and how much we're including them in the process so that they feel like it's really a lot of fun to be a customer, not just like they're buying stuff, but it's actually, you know, it's part of their life too, that they're actually getting a lot more out of it. And so we work very hard to try to always add more value so that she sees or he sees or they see how much we care and appreciate that they're a customer of ours. It's an amazing thing to do with your other businesses as well, because I think with a proposition or a service like facial or massage, it's, you know, obviously a very sort of intimate interaction. It's very private. To your point, it's not for the beautician or the masseuse to sort of tell them about their sort of difficult divorce or whatever. But in that interaction, you know, there's two parties, whereas often when you, you know, if you go into Boots and you buy soap and glory or if you order beauty pie you're you aren't interacting with an individual in that sense so how have you managed to create that same feeling and that same care and consideration in in beauty pie well i think like number one is that the products are just incredibly high quality for the price right the price value equation of what you get at beauty pie is unbeatable yes you can buy cheaper products all over the place right you can buy things that are made in china or might have sort of, you know, the same type of product, but it's not necessarily going to have the same the same ingredients. It's not going to have the same um, benefit payoff or the same eventual efficacy. Um, but that's number one. It's like you want to get it and then you want to be thrilled with it. And as long as you're thrilled with it, that's kind of step note. You're thrilled with that product, then you were thrilled with this product, then you're thrilled with that product. And you think, wow. I mean, I, of course, am my own customer. So I have a Beauty Pie membership. I order my own products, right? I do get one of each thing for free. It usually doesn't come right away because it's at the end of each month when we launch things. Then they'll send me a box and those I keep in my studio so that if I have to do a podcast or if I'm doing an Instagram live or something like that, I've got them so I can show people. Yeah. Um, So I have one, but it's always got a sticker on it and that's not for me. I have to buy it if I want it. And so I think, Number one, it keeps me very honest in terms of, are we launching this product? It's like, would I buy this with my money? Because if I wouldn't buy this with my money, I don't expect anyone to buy it with their money, even if it is a deal. Because if it isn't a great product, no matter how cheap it is, right, or how affordable, it's not a good deal, right? Nobody needs landfill in their bathroom. So that's kind of thing number one. Um, And so we work so hard and we edit through so much product to make sure that our product is exceptional and I have seen a lot of products in my day so I'm a really good editor I mean I was kindly sent some before the podcast and I'm a fan of the brand anyway obviously working in PR marketing I've seen it sort of everywhere but I had the anti 
aging cream in the pot and I've never from Switzerland I've never so had good. more comp I'm not wearing any makeup today because I've never had more compliments on my skin in my life and I've tried lots of different things over the course of time in my job yeah and also the hair oil I mean it's oh my god it the seven, the seven oil hair elixir yeah Amazing. elixir yeah <laughs> And again, yeah. I went. To, I was saying to, to a girl on your team, Casey, that I had a blow dry the other day, and my hair dry, my hairdresser, who I've had for many years, commented on my hair, and I said I've been using this for three weeks, and already, so it is amazing, and the cream is amazing. I mean, you feel like it cost one hundred and fifty quid. I mean, it really is yeah. like an, an experience. So, I guess that's why people, you know, I I will be buying that again, for example. <laughs> so it works. It's, that is an amazing. That's actually one of our best selling products. Every single day, when you look at like what were the top twenty yesterday, it's always on there. Right, and it's. I think nineteen pounds or something like that. Which, yeah, you know, you would pay one hundred and fifty for that if you walked into any kind of premium retailer. Yeah, it's and it's straight from the lab in Switzerland. So that's that whole network of knowing where all of this stuff came from through all of my other brands and working with so many of the greatest suppliers in the world. Right. Whether it was you know when I had um, Bliss was sold to LVMH, so I'd been to Orléans and I'd seen which suppliers work for Dior and you know Guerlain and all of their different brands and beauty brands and where the perfume houses were and which perfume houses they used for their perfumes and then meeting the people who worked there. Yeah. And the same thing of you know knowing which Swiss labs did the best the best anti-aging stuff and which French labs does do the best body creams and where you can get the best candles. I know where everybody buys their stuff. Right. And so being able to then go to them and have them submit their like dream products is kind of, it's really fun actually. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of work, <laughs> but it's fun. Do you think with that in mind that it gets easier? I mean, you're on business. I mean, you might've had some other businesses that didn't work that you don't tell us about but you've had five very successful businesses is it sort of easier and more enjoyable now than perhaps it was 15 20 years ago hmm that's a really good question I never think about it as being easier I always am trying to sort of raise my own game right and do it better and think like how can I make it better for the customer and how can we be more efficient and how can the processes within the business be more efficient and more fun so that people are learning but they're not wasting time and so I think the bigger it gets, the harder it gets because you're always sort of challenging yourself to do it better. So anything at scale um, becomes harder for sure. And presumably you've also had to grapple with enormous technological evolutions and changes in the way, you know, to, because staying power is a, is a really amazing thing we see all these things on social media about sort of overnight successes and people wanting to sort of IPO in a month and like these ridiculous sort of people who don't really grasp the reality of running a business but for you I mean so much must have changed have you just had to continually sort of read and talk to people and absorb and keep your brain you know activated as you said that from from that creativity perspective yeah it's interesting actually I do think about that because often I am the one who is still, despite the fact that I've got quite young, quite young teams, right? Especially in the tech arena, often I am the one who uncovers the rock, right? And goes, "Hey, what, hey you guys, have you seen this?" <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because maybe they're buried in spreadsheets, and I'm maybe slightly less buried in spreadsheets, or maybe it's because I'm more curious. Or I'm more paranoid and therefore at night I will be reading through tech newsletters to make sure that we've got like the most updated AI software for generating blah, 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 or this or that. Um, Or they're just humoring me and saying, yeah, that's really great. And then putting it off on the side and they've done it already. But there is, I think, the part of being able to see the whole picture and then putting it together where you realize... um, something, some part of it might have to be updated more than somebody who isn't looking at the entire thing as a, as a system in systems thinking. Um, so I, I do feel like you either adapt or you die, right? Yeah. You can't be doing what you were doing 10 years ago now. Yeah. I mean, it ain't going to work. It's just not, no, it isn't. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and lose a lot of money because a lot of stuff doesn't work, right? So there's a lot of hype around a lot of things. TikTok, for instance, right? Great, great, huge, you know, it's such a huge platform right now. Does it bring you any customers? Not necessarily. 
right? It might bring you a few, but is it as good as Facebook? Nope. It isn't. So it doesn't convert, but people be like, oh, everybody has to go to TikTok. And then people will go and spend a billion dollars on TikTok and they'll hire whole teams for TikTok. And so it's like Amazon's new clothes on TikTok. It is. It is. And you kind of have to wait and see so you don't just spin wheels and you got to build your house on the bricks that you've got while making sure that you're you're evolving instead of revolving all the time. And you see that with young brands where they're just trying to do everything and suddenly they've got NFTs and suddenly there's some like AI stimulus, but it's not really necessarily relevant for their infrastructure. I mean, do you feel, have you felt pressure with certainly Beauty Pie and Fit Flop more recently to do everything all at once? Do you feel like on day one, you've got to be the most sustainable, have the best hires, have the best packaging? Is it just like everything's got to work at the beginning? Or is it like, let's get something out the door and then I'll build the plane as it flies? Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, you'll never be able to do everything all at once. Um, When we started Beauty Pie, actually, we did start with the idea of we're going to do products we're going to do packaging very light. We're going to do it as green as possible. So we've always tried to make our packaging choices that way. Um, but, you know, in terms of getting the very best people into the business, when you're a tiny business and you're three people and you don't even have any customers and you haven't even launched, you can't get the best hires. Right. Because people are like, well, I'm not, I'm not going over there. I work at Google, yeah. right? Now they'd love to come over because Google, you know, has the problem with uh, Chad GPT. Right. So they've laid off all their people. So everything kind of goes in those waves. And I think the key is that you, that you have a solid business, that the fundamentals are really sound, that you, you respect your customer, that you build it on bricks. You're not just trying to throw, trying to do everything and not doing anything well at all, that you know which lane you're in. And there's a really great book, um, which I would recommend to anybody who is listening um, and, and all the books by Jim Collins. Right. Yeah. Who is, he's kind of like an old star in terms of business, you know, uh, literature. So he is, but he's an absolute genius. And he talks about the, the most recent one, um, firing bullets before you fire cannonballs. Right. So in, it's a book called great by choice. It's one, one of his more recent ones. And it is my new favorite saying, which is like, let's fire a bullet before we fire a cannonball. Right. right? If the bullet hits the target, let's fire two more bullets and see if they hit the target too. Then you put a cannonball up and fire the cannonball. You do not fire a cannonball at the beginning because that can just take you out if you fire in the wrong direction. So small tests of what you're doing to see if the time, the effort, the energy, the money, whatever is worth it before you like go off and go, because a lot of stuff doesn't give you a return. And that's built into your beauty pie structure, isn't it? Like with the products, you have subscribers and you test product. And if people like it, you do more of it. So you're kind of integrating that anyway into your, into your business plan. Yes. I mean, we'll have some things where we just know we need this product and it's amazing and we're, we're launching it. Right. Um, but a lot, probably once a month now, we have an insider product and especially with fragrance. So we've done something called a scent lab, which is amazing. And it's just five little fragrances in a box and our customers can try them. They buy it because we can't afford to give one of these to everybody because, you know, good fragrance juice is actually quite expensive and yeah. to have them in five little vials, quite expensive. So they buy them basically and then they test them out and then they have a QR code where they can feedback. This was my favorite one, this one, this one, this one. And then, which is like quite, quite fantastic. Then we get to launch the ones that we know that people are going to buy. Right. And so you don't end up sitting on 10,000 bottles of a fragrance that nobody wanted. So you're almost, you're, you're using that feedback loop, but in a really positive way for the customer. Yeah. And people love it. I don't know anybody who hasn't at some point said, gee, I wish I worked in cosmetics, <laughs> right? Because everybody thinks it's so fun to work in cosmetics and like the nitty gritty of it when suddenly, you know, your packaging comes in and the caps are all wonky and you have to return them and then you don't have any product for three months because something happened at the cap supplier. Yeah, That's not fun, right? And no. people are yelling at you and you've now you've got an Instagram ad that was scaling, and now you have to turn it off because you don't have any of this product that the Instagram ad was scaling for. And like all of that, which happens like 400 times a day, that's not fun. But yeah. being able to pick the fragrance that you like the most, perfect. we want her to be able to be on the fun part. In the way that your job has evolved, you're obviously incredibly hands-on and, and attention to detail and uh, is extraordinary. But presumably your role in 
Beauty Pie particularly, and, and Fit Flop has, has evolved. You're probably not doing the same things you were doing perhaps with Bliss, but have you found it difficult to let it grow because you just can't be in everything and you just the, the attention to detail and the product you put out is so important to you? Have you found it hard to sort of delegate and let stuff go? Um, not re- not really. I think uh, my job and my role in both of the businesses is to make sure that the product itself is a very high quality, something that I myself would want to buy or wear or use or etc. Um, with my own money. And then also that the way that we're speaking to our customer is with respect and it's a value added to her life. And that's kind of my job. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it goes into a lot more than that in like day to day, making sure that like on a, you know, an email communication or a social post or whatever it is that it's respectful and it's fun enough that if she's using her time to read it, that she feels like that was worth reading. Yeah. You know, that for me is kind of the most important thing. Um, and, and that manifests itself in a million different ways when you look at content that you're producing as a brand. Um, so that is hard because there's a lot of it right. and you have to produce things for so many different channels and but we have great people. I've hired lots of great people from, you know, some of the best possible sources with the best training who are also really, you know, not, I don't necessarily go and hire like the trendy people, right? Um, because the trendy people don't always know what good looks, they know what good looks Today. like to wear it or buy yeah. it, but not necessarily to create it. And I don't want, um, you know, the fashion victims. I want the smart people. And actually, our customers are the smart people. So I think um, one of your questions, I was I was flipping through like what questions might look like. So in my prep document yeah, for this, thank you for reading one it. One of your questions. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. I actually made notes and everything so I could be succinct, which rarely happens. Um, but um, one of them was like, "Is your customer stayed the same?" And yeah. I thought, you know what? Yes, she absolutely has. She's smart. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about customer because it's it does seem to be this that there's there's such an amazing authenticity with all your businesses that you're not you know it's very clear that you're not trying to con or dupe anyone into buying anything you're saying look guys I've done the work this is amazing and I desperately want to share it with you so that you have access to it and I think that comes through and even just reading and researching the the, the business beauty pie the feedback and the comments and even just you know on Instagram and other sort of community platforms people are fanatical about it and I and and yeah. I've seen I mean I've got a team of 25 23 of them are women and they're sort of 22 years old to sort of 35 years old yeah and it is the hot brand that they talk about and it is it is not just oh isn't that a cool brand it's like all the nuggets that you talk about it's like oh my god it's amazing and you can do this and it's cheaper and the package you know it's like that's selling through to them and I imagine that from a customer acquisition perspective, people now are just like desperate to see what you'll come out with next because they want to be connected to, to your journey as well, which is which is an amazing thing. So so you say she's smart. I mean, what else can you say about your consumer? Is it sort of a very broad age range and is it sort of it, presumably a global customer as well? Well, we're not that global at the moment simply because we've had this terrible software platform and we haven't been able to go really global on Beauty Pie. So we've really just stuck to the UK and the US for now until we can get our new software system in, which will be in in a couple of months. It's been taking forever. Right. Um, of course, with FitFlop Global, we're in like 56 countries. So that is massive. Um, and I'm not quite as close to my customer at FitFlop. So yeah. in Korea, she's a very different customer. In Korea, she is like... 19 years old. She loves the height. Right. She loves the comfort. She wears sandals to school. That's who our customer is there. In um, in America, it's going to be sort of the the woman. I mean, it really, yes. it's different everywhere. With the beauty pie customer, because we are direct to consumer and we don't go through any distributors, she's probably 33 to 65, right? Um, and, and then the 45-year-olds, all their daughters are using it. Well, their daughters are stealing it from their cupboards. That's exactly it. So the wonderful thing is, and it was really interesting too, when we had our pop-up shop, which was last year, and I'm kind of desperate to do another one, but we don't have enough people on our team at the moment. It was amazing. It was so fun because everybody came in, right? You got to see, oh, here they are. Here's all of our customers. Because when you're live streaming, you can't see them. They can only see you. 
so that, you know, you don't actually get to see who you're, when we opened those doors, it was everybody, right? But it was everybody from like these two young girls who were studying engineering at blah, blah, blah. And they were coming in to get all their stuff. And I was helping them choose, you know, they still even are on a budget. Um, and even on a budget for beauty pie, you know, like our $60 thing might be $15. That's still for some people yeah, for moisturizer, yeah. that's still not nothing. So I was trying to make them get what they you know needed, but on the budget that they had. But then you also had like the 70 year old groovy psych, Psychologist coming in with the isimiyaki, everything. Yeah, with a huge bag and, to just like fill yeah, with products. Yes. And just like grand smelling all the candles and yeah. like having some shipped and whatever. And, and then it was like everybody in between. You had the six foot five basketball playing guy and then like the rock star who was trying on all the mascaras. And it was like, it's everybody. And I love that. And I don't, um, like, I don't love the idea of being exclusionary as a brand, you know, like luxury brands they really sort of cut people out. It's like, if you're not cool enough, you don't really. Yeah. And I don't like that at all. I want to be for everybody. So it's, it's really important for me to be an expert, have the very best stuff, explain it to people, but make people feel like they belong here and they should feel like excited about being able to get it or not. Like, you know, of course you don't have to buy everything that we, that we have, yeah. um, but we try and just make sure that there is something for it or well, actually that there's a lot of stuff for everybody. When the best ideas, people often say that they'd thought of it, right? Like the number of people I've met who went after Uber launch were like, oh, I had an idea for an app with a car or whatever. And you're like, right, okay. You know, it's all about execution. And FitFlop is a business that completely changed how we thought about, how we thought about walking. Your shoes. Yeah, and and how we thought about like functionality connected to a product. I mean, I remember it was I sort of discovered the product through my mum but it was people took huge pride in I've got my flip-flops on and and you know and still do now but sort of at the time for you when you come up with an idea or a concept does it feel very obvious to you are you sort of stumbling upon issues and then just saying oh I could I could come up with a solution to that Yes, kind of. Yes, it is that simple. It's like, you know what, there's nothing for this, or I can't find this. I can't believe there isn't one of these that exists. Or, I mean, with flip-flop, it was literally, I could not find a comfortable pair of shoes that it was that I felt, you know, knowing yoga, knowing bodybuilding, being a very fit person. I had to walk my, I didn't have to, but I enjoyed walking my child to school every morning. And I, I did not, um, I didn't like dress shoes because my feet are a little bit wider and I had sort of athletes kind of build. Um, and I could not find a pair of sandals that was, that would almost even stay on my feet while I would walk my son to school. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Why can't I find just a comfortable pair of sandals to walk my kid to school that is good for me? And I can do something else while I'm walking. Like it's sort of a multitasking thing. And so I thought about it for a while. I was like, oh, wait. If I could invent that, I then had to figure out how to invent <laughs> how to invent a shoe that had all these properties, right. which I needed help from the outside because I'm not a biomechanist by training. So I had to go find someone who knew how to help construct a shoe that would do certain things when you walk in it. And that was not an area of expertise that I had. And I didn't even know what the name of the person who would have this expertise would be. Right. You're like, is he an engineer? Is he a... Footwear designer. Yeah. Who are we? Yeah, did not know the word biomechanist. Has there been a point with all your businesses where you've thought, yeah, this is working? Is it like, I mean, whether it's a sort of sales number or chatter or you get an email from a certain type of person, but is there a moment where you're like, yeah, this is, she's, I've nailed this? Uh, It's usually, I'd say, like, sort of generally is when, um, when you see customers start saying they love, like, when you see, they say, I love these. I love this. I love when my pink box arrives. I love my flip-flop sandals. I, like the word, the word love appearing a lot kind of does it. Also, when people start to change their Instagram or Facebook or TikTok handle to include your brand name. That's a big day. That's a big day. Um, I like I like it when I also see that team members. I mean, that's incredible also for the business. If somebody changes their Instagram handle... And they work in the team and they change it to like beauty pie so-and-so. 
then you think, okay, I'm doing a great job. They're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to also them. transfer yeah. to, yeah. Or when people call themselves a pie girl or, you know, whatever it is, you're like, okay, we're doing all right here. Yeah. Um, of course, there are always things like when you're on Oprah, right? Like when Oprah talks about you and her favorite things. I love how when, casual that is. Obviously, when you're on Oprah, it's like... Yeah, when you're Oprah. Yeah. But, you know, those are just the obvious ones. They're yeah, kind of like, of course. of course, yes. But it's not really an indicator. That's like a one-off and you're lucky if you get it. I mean, we were on the cover with Fifth Love when we first launched. There was an article in the... I think it was the, time, the Sunday Times. And it was something about... It said like this flip-flop does blah, 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 blah for you. Or the... I can't remember. I should have screenshotted it and like printed it out. But it was like a one-liner about a very clickbaity one-liner. On So at that time, on the Sunday Times website, they would have the top three trending stories, right? <laughs> that story was number one above Putin on why the West should be more worried. And like, I don't know, whoever was president at the time gives right. his advice for blah, blah, blah. And fit flop. <laughs> You're like, this is a confusing readership for me. They're like, I definitely need to know what's happening in Russia, but I also want to tone my butt with the shoe. So more people wanted more the people shoe. Care. And you had Uma Thurman, didn't you, at the beginning as a brand ambassador? Oh, it was actually more recent. Oh, uh, more or maybe, recent I don't know, five or six years ago, because I used to give her facials. Oh, wow. So, so your customer yeah, has so, stayed the same. She's She's stayed well, all the way through. At one point, I was like, hey, Uma, do you want to do like a campaign with us? Yeah, you've really <laughs> I'll give you a facial. Yeah. <laughs> we, we hear a lot from founders about sort of what it takes to run a business and what the traits are. I wonder if you can tell me a bit more about your superpower in connecting the dots. Okay, so I did a little bit of, I did a little summary of connecting the dots for you, just so I wouldn't ramble on and on and on. So connecting the dots is, is the way to come up with something new. Okay. So a new idea, right? Or a new concept that you might want to be able to take to market. The secret about connecting the dots is that you want to start with a lot of dots. Otherwise, you end up in a straight line. Or you, <laughs> right? The same straight line that everybody else is going down. Or you'll end up in a box and you can't get out of it. Yeah. And that is not going to help you. So you have to think of it this way. Every fact in your head, every person that you know, every problem you've solved, every mistake you've made, every job you've tackled, every idea you've had, every random article that you've read, they're all dots. Right? Okay. They're little pieces of information that if you can connect them in your own original way, you will have a new idea. And that can be your entrepreneurial idea. Um, if you have only six dots... You need to read more. Yeah. You need to meet more people. You need to try a few more jobs. You need to learn a few more things from the world. If you've got a thousand dots, you have infinite numbers of ways to connect them to come up with your own new picture, right? So that's what I talk about when I talk about connecting the dots. And do you um, have a process for filtering out ideas that aren't perhaps commercially viable? Yes. So this is a really easy one as well that everybody can use. Okay. And it's the same as the practical steps for launching a business, right? How would you kind of start or initial barriers? If you think of it all the same way, first, I always tell people they should do the so what test. And the so what test with any idea that you've got for a business is as follows. Grab a random stranger, right? Not a friend, not your mother, not somebody who really likes you and doesn't want to hurt your feelings, not right? And, and someone who's probably your target market. So kind of looks like someone in your target market. And you tell them your idea. And then you ask them to respond. Tell them you're going to tell them something you want them to respond with. So what? So you'll tell them the idea. They respond with so what? If you then cannot answer the so what in 15 seconds and have them convinced that they need whatever it is that you're selling, go back to the drawing board. And refine your idea until the so what test is passed in 15 seconds. And is that to do with the simplicity of being able to say, to, to land your idea? It's sort of just, it's one line. It's like, this is it, rather than overcomplicating. And whether that idea is good enough, because a lot of the ideas are not good enough. And that's where you have to keep talking and keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. And it's like, eh. if you hadn't had a bit, they've walked away by then, right? Have you ever had to give up ideas that you we're really connected to or do you find it quite easy to just say look that's not right let's scrap that 
Yeah. You know what? Knowing how hard it is to actually get an idea off the ground, how much effort it is and how much you otherwise could be accomplishing if you're working on a better idea. Normally I have a lot of ideas and it's only the good ones that kind of stay top of mind anyway. The rest of them I just kind of forget about if they're just too common or they wouldn't pass a so what test. If someone listening was trying to start their own company, perhaps hadn't yet, hadn't quite handed in their notice, hadn't quite pursued um, the idea. Do you have any obvious initial barriers that they might need to overcome before they start a company? Things that they should think about. Yes. Well, first is the so what test, Yeah. right? So you kind of don't want to just go and start a company. You want to know that there is a market for whatever it is that you're going to be selling. Um, on, on another note, some people are just naturally their own bosses and some people are naturally more comfortable with being an employee. The world needs everybody. So thank God for my team members. Like without them, I am nothing. I can't get all of this stuff done. I need them and I need them to not want to be the boss because if they wanted to be the boss, then, you know, we wouldn't have one clear direction all day long. Um, my friend Anne once said to me, you're so brave. You've started all these companies and you just go out there and you work for yourself. And I turned around and said to her, you're so brave. You worked for 40 years for some guy at a record company that you thought was an idiot. <laughs> so I think yeah, like, whatever those, yeah, those barriers, it's like, is that a barrier or is it not a barrier? For some people, it would be a barrier. It all depends on your perspective. Yeah, totally. Do you think social media has set a challenging narrative for particularly women starting businesses? Because there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of sort of highlights, reels and, you know, Vogue lists to your point earlier. And, you know, is it is it challenging? Do you think there's a sort of mis, misdirection with social media and young people who are interested in business? I listened to um, another really great podcast besides yours the other day. Very kind, very kind. <laughs> And uh, I think it was Hidden Brain, and he was talking about how on social media, of course, everyone is sharing their successes. Yeah, so the 1% of, um, of their life they share is the successful part, and rarely do they sell, unless their whole shtick on social media is to sell, I'm a failure. A, you know, I'm depressed. Uh, yes, I'm a failure. Here's how I'm overcoming it, which is also a thing, right? Um, but most people just share their most beautiful experiences, their biggest successes, rarely do people share their problems. And so if you get too worried about following social media, you're just going to see that everybody else is successful and you're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's, it can be quite difficult. You have to be really careful about what you follow because you would give up really easily if yeah. you just followed social media because you think, well, why is everybody doing so well and I'm not? Why am I having all these problems and they're not? And it's like, guess what? They're having the same problems you are, but they're putting up, you know, when they finally have a good day, they're blasting about it on social media. But it takes quite a long time to do that. I think also one of the things that you see, which is super interesting, is that you can have someone who's got a huge following, right? Um, They don't necessarily sell a lot of product. Right. That just because people click like on their you know, on their reel of them applying a nice lip gloss color does not mean that people are running off to buy that $55 lip gloss. So you can't conflate uh, likes and, and a lot of them are bots. Yeah, and value. Um, and yeah, with with a, a viable business. And it could be, in fact, the opposite. No, that's great advice. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given about running a business? I mean, my, I get someone asked me the other day, like, what's the best advice you've ever been just given? And I said, you know, it is. I was raised as a Catholic, right? Um, and of course, you go to Mass, and they, it's always in the sermon that you do unto others as you would want others to do unto you. So for me, it is about trying to treat everyone with the respect that I would like to be treated with um, and try to be generous. And if you can help, other people out, then they will help you out. Um, and in fact, on a deeper level, I, I really believe that you are successful if you believe that you should be. I mean, of course, you got to work like a dog. You've got to be smart. You have to, you have to be efficient. You can't be spinning wheels. You can't be wasting time, money, and energy. But there are a lot of people who work hard and smart and don't spin wheels and don't waste time, or money, or energy. But at the end, you have to believe that you're worthy right? So if you are a 
good person and you're good to people and you help other people out and um and you spread good energy then i really believe that you then believe that it will come back to you so deep down you let yourself become successful rather than you're successful because of all of those other things yeah many times we just stand in in our way um and so you have to act act daily like how would you say it act daily the way that would make you deserve it (laughs) someone write that down Perfect. I don't know if that even made sense. No, it's great. It's <laughs> put one, that on a t-shirt. Yeah, put it on a bumper sticker. Um, do you do you feel proud of what you've achieved? Do you take time um, to feel pride? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. I'm very happy. I, I wouldn't say proud. I would say I'm really happy to bring so much joy to so many people's lives through what I do for a living, which is, you know, sell beauty products and or shoes. Um, And that makes a lot of people really happy. And they love to be able to get the good stuff for less and making people feel like part of something and feel like they're winning. Mm. That thrills me every day. But does it make me really proud? I don't know. I'm not really a proud person. I don't think my mom was either. We're like Polish, you know, she's a Polish immigrant. And, you know, are we proud it's not a no it sounds very British it's an emotion that I get yeah Yeah. we must not discuss that um (laughs) you hired uh, a CEO for Beauty Pie this year but it was the only business you've had that you raised money for what was the reason for that why did you decide with this one to bring in investors oh well we brought in investors probably four years ago or so um simply because like direct-to-consumer tech businesses were impossible to hire for. And I was unable as a sole proprietor um, to find the talent that I needed to be able to really scale the business. Um, It just seemed like everybody that I'd interview that I'd want to hire, their last question would be, well, who funded you? And I would say, well, I'm funding this myself. And then they wouldn't want the job because they wanted to be at a VC-backed business. Yeah, so I said, okay, well, what do I have to do? I'm going to (laughs) go. I'll go out there. I'll make a deck. I'll go pitch. And actually, we had a lot of people who were venture capitalists who had called us anyway. So I had sort of a waiting list. So I went and I tried to go. I, I put five on the list of who I was going to reach out to and made sure three of them were women because there was a lot of chat at the time. Like, you know what? Female VCs don't get all the good deals. They're not getting the, you know, they're not getting the best deals. They're not in there enough. So I made sure that three of them were women and two of them are men. Um, One happened to be the boss of one of the school dads who their kids went to school with my kids. So I, you know, they introduced me. And then there was one other person I thought was just a really great human being. And he has proved to be a really great human being. So excited about that. Um, and so I went out and um, pitched everybody and raised some money and then was able to hire people. And did people get it? Because obviously the concept of Beauty Pie is probably more of an American structure to come, the deal structure for the customer. Has it been easy... Um, I've heard you talk about it as Netflix of beauty. Has it been? Yeah. Was it? Was it very easy to get people to understand what it was you were trying to do? Venture capitalists, yes. Customers, less so. Okay. Which is really interesting. Customers didn't really. I think because there's a real learning curve. So an average beauty consumer, right? If you're just a shopper, you don't know that this perfume, right, is made in the same made by the same nose that blended the last Chanel perfume or the last whatever perfume or whatever. And it comes from grass and it's made in a third party manufacturer and it's the same essential oil used in the Hermes, blah, blah, blah. You, you have no idea. You think that this brand makes their stuff in their own house, right? And they manufacture it and then you buy it and that the brand and everything else belongs to And that each brand is really special because the beauty industry has trained everyone to believe that, right? Um, And like L'Oreal, so genius with you're worth it. As long as you pay a lot for it, you're worth it. Um, And so trying to, you had to really educate customers in the fact that there are third-party manufacturers and they produce product that's very similar or the same for, you know, 
all the, there's 40 different premium uh, makeup brands who have the same eyeshadow stick. Exactly. Right. Different packaging. Exactly. The same formula it all comes from this one lab in Italy. You can pay at beauty pie, like $12 for it, or you could pay 60 at yeah. Tom Ford. You choose. <laughs> and people didn't understand that. And so that learning curve of, Hey, we're getting it direct from the people who actually make it. It is in the case of makeup, pretty much the same stuff that you will buy from these expensive brands. Um, you're just getting it for a lot less. It took a while for people to understand. And that was a surprise to me, of course, because I'm in the middle of it. So I know it. So we always kind of had to explain how are we doing this? It was like, why are we doing it? Right. Because the beauty industry actually should be empowering women, not picking their pocket. Mm-hmm. Right. How are we doing it? We're going direct to the labs that make this stuff. Um, yeah. And, and what are we doing? So it's like Simon Sinek. I'm sure you've read him yeah, too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The what, how, and the why. Right. And so we always tried to stay focused on that. And that really helped a lot at the beginning. It was like your, your point earlier that psychologically, the idea of something being uh, cheaper or less expensive, you assume it's worse quality because that's what we've sort of yes. been presented with. So you're sort of railing against like an innate sense of, you know, psychological connection to price, which is a difficult thing to overcome. I've only got you for a few more minutes, but I will ask, um, how do you define success? I think it's, it would probably be a ratio over the moments of my day that I feel happy and carefree <laughs> over the moments of my day that I don't. What's that ratio today? Um, 50-50. Okay. I'd say that's pretty good. Okay, great. That's, we, yeah, can, we can yeah. work with that. Do you have a favorite brand? Of my of my own or of other people's? Of your own. Of my own? Oh, no, I love them all, of Is course. like favorite I mean, child question? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I loved Bliss because it was like a social club, right? And and you really had hands-on interaction with the customer. And really, I was seeing nine friends every day for an hour and a half while I happened to do their face. And we were like, blah, 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 chatting away. And every month they would come in, so I'd get to catch up on what they were doing and you know, what was up with their in their lives. And it was so one, it was really energizing, yeah. like quite incredible. So I loved that aspect of it. And then we had actually a mail order business, which was a catalog that went out to millions of people also. And that was the Bliss the bliss Out catalog. And um, so that was really fun because I learned a lot about direct mail and selling products and really precursor to the internet doing that. Loved it. I mean, Flip-Flop has been amazing because it's really hard to go back to other shoes once you wear them because other shoes are really bad for your body generally. Um, not much out there that's built actually for the skeleton of the body and how it moves and the correct proprioception, all of that. No one thinks about it really. I mean, Nike will think about runners and you know how people run and to make the cushion and all that kind of stuff, but just general daily movement, we have it. And so I feel really um, like that is such a good thing for the energy of the world to be able to have better footwear. <laughs> And I don't know what I would do if it didn't exist because I don't know where I would get my shoes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, and then Beauty Pie is like my entire bathroom. Do you find it easy to switch brains between all the ideas? Is it just sort of like, uh, do, can you switch off ever? Or is it just sort of always constantly learning and expanding your brain and going, oh, I'm going to learn about this new sort of like metaphysics something or other to learn, you know is it just like a constant quest for kind of n- new information um I like to fill gaps sure yes I like to fill gaps I mean if my brain is on it's really on if it's off it's completely off okay right? so if I need to zone out I will just zone out I have no problem falling asleep at night you know how some people are like oh I can't sleep I'm so stressed out it's like oh no my stress happens when I'm awake I put my head on that pillow. It is recovery time from like all this stuff that's going on in my head. So I'm pretty well balanced with that. I think you have to be, and you have to give your mind space to file the files, right? If you, if you learn new things, it requires sleep and downtime to remember those things. Otherwise you don't. And so there's no point in learning them if you're not going to file them. Right. It's like your rest day in fitness. You need your moment for your body to change. If you had one more hour in the day, what would you use it for? I would spend more time with my kid, my son. And the final two questions. What's the best investment you've ever made in Beauty Pie? I think it's definitely got to be people. I mean, you have when you have great people and they get it and they're really into it, as into it as you are yeah. as the owner, 
and then driving it along is so much fun when you have those people you know I know I know yeah exactly I know (laughs) finally what's next what can we expect to see Um, next well if I told you I'd have to kill you that's true okay let me Mm. rephrase that question um beauty pie and fit flop what's happening in the next three to six months presumably new new products new launches loads of new products loads of new launches new stores um we're gonna have retail stores which we're really excited about um and for beauty pie we'll probably have like little you know warehouse of dreams here warehouse of dreams there warehouse of dreams there but probably always on rather than pop up just because it's so much effort to get one going anyway you might as well stay there So super excited about that. Um, and just lots of, you know, it's always just about bringing something fun and new to the customer right? and um, and affordable, of course. So we have like plan after plan after plan, and we're just going to try and execute them with excellence. Well, I have absolutely no doubt you will. Um, Marcia, thank you so much. I'm so, so grateful for you taking time. It is absolutely extraordinary what you've achieved and you are so accessible and warm and wonderful and kind and generous with your time and your honesty today I'm sure everyone listening will be so grateful to you for for all your insights and wisdom um, of your journey no doubt we'll continue to watch you uh succeed and excel I I have no doubt that beauty pie will not be your last business there'll be something else in the future but for the time being good luck with with that one and with fit flop um it's been an absolute pleasure so thank you very much thank you very much for having me it was great it was fun 